Hi, this is Paul Starr with another episode of Law, Institutions, and Public Policy, the Woodrow Wilson School course. This week, we're talking about institutional change and inequality, specifically the rise in economic inequality in the United States and other advanced economies over the past half century. First, we'll look at changes in market-generated income and wealth, focusing on changes in work and labor markets. Next, we'll turn to social welfare policy and taxation, exploring the extent to which redistributive policies have offset or exacerbated the rise in inequality in market incomes. Before we get to those developments, I'm going to set out some general ideas about institutions and inequality, building on discussions we've had throughout the semester. Institutions, we've said, are systems of rules and practices that shape a domain of action. In the process, they also shape how resources are distributed. The relation between institutions and inequality, between rules and resources, goes both ways. Institutions allocate power in economic relationships, so institutional rules often determine the resources that people have. And at the same time, people with more resources usually have more power to make the rules and apply them. Those with fewer resources depend on two mechanisms for influence, exit and voice, the economist Albert Hirschman called them. Exit is the ability to quit or to stop buying or using a product or to flee or emigrate. Voice is the ability to be heard, to be represented in decisions, or to force decision makers to listen. Let's consider two situations. In the first, the formal institutions of the economy establish highly unequal relationships, and the opportunities for both exit and voice are minimal. Chattel slavery epitomizes the most extreme form of human domination in which one person owns other people as property, coerces labor from them, and can buy and sell them. A feudal lord's power over his tenants, though not as absolute, also involved extensive control of their lives. The political and economic institutions that Asimogu and Robinson in their book, How Nations Fail, describe as extractive, fits into this category. So does the patriarchal family. These are all cases of domination in which there is little escape from the powerful and little restraint on them from below, much less civil, political, or social equality. In the second kind of situation, however, there is rule of law and some degree of formal equality. Formal equality in the marketplace, formal equality before the law, formal equality in the family, even equal voting rights. But inequality characterizes these situations too, in varying degrees, depending in part on the opportunities for exit and the channels for voice. These are often situations of bargaining. There's bargaining in the marketplace, bargaining in legal disputes, bargaining in the family, bargaining in politics. For the weaker parties, bargaining is better than domination. But they're often stuck with bargains far from their liking. Galanter's article, How the Haves Come Out Ahead, provides a good example of how inequality arises, even under legal equality, from the varying incentives and constraints 
facing parties with different resources. Repeat players in legal disputes have enormous advantages over one-shotters. More experience, access to better lawyers, the ability to adopt strategies that pay off in the long run. In particular, the repeat players are more interested than one-shotters in what Galanter refers to as the rules component of decisions. One-shotters care mainly about the tangible monetary component in their own case. The result is that over time, the repeat players tend to shape the rules. For example, they're better able to choose which cases to bring to court and which to settle out of court, thereby influencing the precedents that courts set. Class action suits, as Galanter points out, could partially correct the structural bias by giving one-shotters some of the benefits of repeat players. But just as Galanter's theory predicts, the repeat players have had more influence on the rules for class action suits themselves and succeeded in getting the courts to restrict them. The marketplace operates by contract, and contract is supposed to proceed on the basis of voluntary agreement. People with different resources, however, do not stand in equal positions on the market, and the biggest and most powerful enterprises are not egalitarian. Control of profit-making firms is vested in those who provide the capital or in their agents. Under U.S. law, boards representing the shareholders govern corporations, and corporations are legally bound to serve those interests. Workers can exit. They can quit at any time, just as their employer can fire them at any time under the rules of at-will employment. Workers generally have limited opportunities for voice, though they can file individual grievances, and if they have a union, they can bargain collectively over pay and working conditions. Under some proposals for corporate reform that call for the stakeholder as opposed to the shareholder model of corporate governance, workers would also receive seats on the boards of corporations, as they do in Germany. But in today's America, shareholder interests dominate corporate decisions, and both capital markets and legal rulings drive companies to maximize shareholder value. The terms of labor have become more unfavorable as a result of those pressures. By the terms of labor, I mean the kind of a deal that workers get. That deal doesn't only involve their wages. It involves benefits such as health insurance and pensions. It involves working hours, like questions of scheduling. It involves opportunities for future promotion, training, and career ladders. It involves standards of evaluation and the extent of monitoring and surveillance in the workplace. It involves the distribution of risks, for example, the risk of getting laid off, becoming unemployed. And it involves workers' voice, whether they are represented at the level of the workplace, at the level of the firm, and at the level of the industry to the extent there are industry-wide policy-making mechanisms. A crucial question is the role that the state plays in regulating the terms of labor. Minimum wages, maximum hours, health and safety conditions, responsibility for risks, licensing and credentialing, recognition of unions, rules for collective bargaining, and many other issues. Much of the discussion about rising economic inequality focuses entirely on the distribution of income and wealth. But before we get to that issue, I want to take note of the deteriorating position of labor in the United States on the other dimensions of inequality besides wages. 
the proportion of workers who get health insurance and pensions from their jobs has fallen. And those who do get them generally get less protection against health care costs and more uncertain pension benefits. This is part of what the political scientist Jacob Hacker calls the great risk shift, the shift of risks from employers to workers. An increasing number of workers are now required to work shifts at hours that they can't control and sometimes aren't even informed of much in advance. Rather than being treated as employees, an increasing number are classified as independent contractors outside the framework of standard employment law without any benefits or security. And even where labor law applies, federal enforcement is often minimal. We'll get back to the issue of growing insecurity, but now let's turn to the rise in income and wealth inequality over the past 40 to 50 years. The earnings of firms are split between capital and labor, between profits that go to the shareholders and compensation for workers. According to a study of 16 leading economies, capital's share of national income increased from 27% in 1980 to 36% by 2005. Income from capital is, of course, far more concentrated among the rich than is labor income, so a growing share for capital contributes to higher overall income inequality. Labor income has also become more unequally distributed as top executives and other top earners command compensation that has increased far more rapidly than earnings for people at the middle and bottom of the distribution. The overall trends in income and wealth inequality since 1980 are well documented in the charts in the April 10th New York Times article by David Leonhardt that I've asked you to read. But to understand the sources of those trends, it helps to take an even longer run perspective, stretching back to the early 1900s. Hear the work of the economist Thomas Piketty and his colleagues on changes in top incomes over the past century is enormously instructive. In the United States between 1910 and 1930, the top decile, that is the top 10%, took in between 40 and 50% of total national income. But by the 1940s, their share fell just below 35% and remained at that level until around 1980, when the incomes of the top decile began to climb again, back up toward 50% of national income. Other measures, such as the share of the top 1% or the top 0.01% or the Gini coefficient, which is an overall measure of inequality, show the same U-shaped pattern. High levels of inequality in the 1920s, falling and staying relatively low from the 1940s to 1980, and then rising again. The other English-speaking countries also show trends toward sharply increased inequality in recent decades. The Northern and Continental European countries, somewhat less so. In retrospect, the mid-20th century was an exceptional period when income and wealth were more equally distributed than either before or after. Why was that period so different? Two world wars, the Great Depression, and the Cold War led to dramatic expansions in the role of the state and to reductions in inequality. This was also the period when Western governments and business were fearful of communist and socialist movements 
and inclined to make concessions to improve workers' security and standard of living. In Piketty's analysis, capitalism has inherent tendencies toward high income and wealth inequality. Now that the exceptional mid-20th century period is over, capitalist economies seem to be reverting to the high inequalities that were typical before. Although the general patterns in Europe and the United States are similar, Piketty demonstrates some important differences. In Europe, inherited wealth suffered devastating losses from the destruction caused by the world wars, bankruptcies during the Great Depression, periods of spiraling inflation, and policies such as rent control and nationalization of industry. Referring to France specifically, Piketty notes that wage inequality was stable, but total market incomes became more, e more equal due entirely to diminished top incomes from capital. In the United States, the world wars didn't bring about the same physical destruction, and the government didn't nationalize industry in those decades. So the rich generally did not sustain as great capital losses, but disparities in labor income were substantially reduced. The ratio of chief executive salaries to the earnings of the average worker fell to relatively low levels. The Great Compression, some economists call it. Disparities in labor income narrowed primarily because of the high tax rates on top salaries that were adopted during the Depression and World War II and maintained during the Cold War. A second turning point, however, came in the 1980s, when, under President Ronald Reagan, the federal government sharply reduced income taxes on both individuals and corporations and unleashed an unprecedented surge in incomes among the very rich. Reduced tax rates gave CEOs and other top corporate managers an incentive to seek huge pay increases, and their hand-picked boards did not stand in the way. Social norms may have restrained top salaries during World War II and the early Cold War, but by the 1980s, those restraints were gone. As income inequality began rising during the 80s and 90s, some economists pointed to technology as a cause, or to be more specific, to a process called skill-biased technological change. That is, changes in technology that were eliminating unskilled and semi-skilled jobs and increasing the rewards to people with the highest levels of skill and education. That argument, however, didn't explain the extremely high concentration of income at the very top, among, among the top 1%. In the same period, governments were not only cutting taxes on top earners and corporations, they were also rolling back regulations, such as regulations on financial markets. One result was the financialization of the economy, that is, the increasing share of both GDP and profits going to financial services. Since finance is an industry with highly unequal earnings, financialization contributed to rising inequality overall. New information and communications technologies did play a role in growing inequality. Corporations were using those technologies to reorganize work and outsource it to independent contractors and to other countries. But political and institutional changes were also involved in that process. The decline of trade unions, the elimination of barriers to trade and new trade agreements, and the full-scale entry 
of China, India, Southeast Asia, and the former Soviet bloc into the global economy, increasing the global supply of labor literally by hundreds of millions of people, and thereby undermining the bargaining position of more highly paid workers in the world's high-income countries. Corporations took advantage of this new situation by cutting labor costs, and they did it in part by outsourcing jobs and fighting unions aggressively. One result of this process was what David Weil, in the assigned reading, calls the fissured workplace. The fissure being between regular employees and the growing number of workers outside the rules of standard employment. Other social scientists refer to this as dualization, the creation of two labor markets, a primary labor market for regular employees and a secondary labor market for independent contractors, part-time workers, and temps. The mid-20th century advances of the labor movement, codified into law, were all built around the standard employment relationship. Many of the legal protections workers enjoy, like unemployment insurance, they enjoy only if they are classified as employees. When Congress passed the Wagner Act in 1935, establishing the National Labor Relations Board, it was authorizing employees, not independent contractors, to organize into unions. The expansion of unions was a major source of a growing middle class in the mid-20th century. For 20 years after the passage of the Wagner Act, the proportion of workers in unions rose from 7% in 1935 to 35% in 1954. Now even factory workers could enjoy a middle-class standard of living far above what their parents and grandparents had. Even at the peak of unionization in the 1950s, however, labor unions were never as strong in the United States as in most Western European countries. In 1947, over President Truman's veto, Congress passed the Taft-Hartley Act, which enabled 20 states, most in the South, to, ena to enact right-to-work laws that limited unions' ability to organize. With its low levels of education, the South competed against the more industrialized, higher-income northern states by offering cheap, non-union labor. Southern anti-unionism helps account not only for the regional limits of unions in the U.S., but for the inability of labor unions here to develop nationwide as they did in Europe. But for a time, labor exercised considerable bargaining leverage in relation to large enterprises in manufacturing, transportation, and other industries. Those big companies operated internal labor markets, that is, internal systems for setting wages, employment practices, and other features of the workplace. As David Weil remarks, workers in large enterprises in the 1970s and 1980s, regardless of union status, tended to be better paid, tended to be paid more than otherwise comparable workers in small enterprises, and to receive better benefits and face more desirable working conditions. That differential, however, meant that business could eventually save money by outsourcing those jobs to small subcontractors who didn't pay as well or provide the same benefits. It meant that the larger firms could cut labor costs by turning to small contractors, independent contractors, part-time workers, and temps, 
That's exactly what they did. The jobs often didn't change. In some cases, the people doing them didn't change either. They were just reclassified. Rather than working as employees of the big company, they might now be working for a subcontractor or a temp agency, getting none of the benefits formerly received by people doing the same job. The companies could justify outsourcing by saying they were concentrating on their core competencies. But often, they were just transferring work from unionized employees to non-union workers. And even when the firms weren't unionized, they were often shedding obligations like health insurance and retirement, as well as responsibilities for paying for unemployment insurance and workers' compensation. Perhaps most important, they turned a wage-setting issue into a contracting issue. As Weil explains, fissuring changes how gains are shared in a fundamental way. By shifting work out, lead firms no longer face a wage determination problem for that work, but rather a pricing problem in selecting between companies vying for that work. That change is critical because it results in fewer gains going to the workers who undertake those activities. It instead shifts those gains to investors. This process of fishering, of dualization, did not just take place in for-profit corporations. It happened in the nonprofit sector as well. Colleges and universities came to rely on increasing numbers of adjunct, part-time instructors instead of full-time, tenure-track faculty. The motivation was the same, cutting labor costs, eliminating responsibility for benefits, all part of the great risk shift. The growth of part-time jobs and independent contracting isn't entirely the result of strategies to cut labor costs. As a result of changing family and gender roles, there has been more demand for flexible work, including telework at home. There are also some well-paid independent contractors at the very top of the labor market, for example, in high-tech, elite, specialized professionals who call themselves consultants. And then there are actors and musicians, fashion models, video game developers, people who seek out cool jobs in hot industries, despite all the risks involved. But for the vast majority of people working outside standard employment, the temps, the part-timers, the adjuncts, the independent contractors, the gig workers, precarious work is not a choice. It's all they can get. And it's a crucial part of the story of rising inequality. I want to close this discussion by noting the generational aspect of this development. The baby boomers and other older cohorts entered the labor force before the fissuring of the workplace. When they were starting out, their first jobs usually had full benefits and opportunities for advancement. That's no longer the case for many young adults today. Your generation is bearing the full consequences of the change in work and employment. This is not a story about institutions long in the past affecting someone else. It's a story about institutions that have changed the opportunities for a decent life today.